you know, our response to gifts that we get, our response to the gifts that we receive is determined by our perceived wants and needs. How we respond to gifts that we receive, it, that response is dictated by what we think we want and what we need, right? Surely in, in your years, you have given or received gifts that you just didn't really want or need. You know, perhaps I knew a family that had a gift closet. And the gift closet is where all the gifts went they didn't want. And then when somebody had a birthday party or somebody got married, they went to the gift closet and pulled it out. Uh, and it was embarrassing when it was something that you had given them. Um, you know, we're, we're good Southerners, right? And I, I, I imagine that most of the time when you receive a gift you don't want, you say, oh, darling, thank you so much. And then you, you put it away and, you know, never use it again. But, but sometimes when, if you're giving a gift and you bust the bank and buy something really expensive, and it isn't received with any enthusiasm, and you're left with that look, what else did you get me? Why is that? Have you seen that with perhaps your children or grandchildren or something that you were really excited about that you gave to somebody and it just, maybe it was a gift that you really wanted for yourself? Well, why do, why do people respond? Why do we respond to the gifts that we receive in the way that we do? Well, it's because it's how we perceive our needs and wants. And ultimately that means that it's a matter of our heart. So how we respond to the gifts that we receive is ultimately a matter of our heart. In our text today, we see that Christ came to give the gifts of faith and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I don't really think there are any other better gifts than those, I would imagine. But we see all sorts of reactions to those gifts that are given. Uh, and it makes us ask the question, how have we responded? We, we can think of that in salvation, sure. Like if you're not a believer in Christ, I, I commend you, I exhort you, I call you to respond in faith and repentance. Things that Christ gives you uh, for salvation. But, but for those who are believers today, how have we responded in our ongoing lives to the amazing gifts that we received in Christ? Have our hearts grown dull? You know, it's a uh, silver plate. We have a whole bunch of silver plate in my house. My mother showed horses growing up and, and still shows horses. And so she won boo koodles of silver plate trophies. And I have a bunch. My brother has a bunch. They're a lot of fun to pull out. But the, you know the problem is with silver plate? Man, you got to polish that stuff. And so often I look at that and it has a tarnish and it just kind of gets gray and dull and so oftentimes, I feel like that represents our response to the gospel. Praise God, we have it. It's a great treasure, but we have not treasured it as much, perhaps, as we once did. Does that describe you this morning? It says a lot about our hearts. May the Lord bless us. All right, so as we look at verse 31, we're going to start in the middle, and then we'll work our way to the edges from there. If we look at verse 31 and Peter's response to the Sanhedrin, we have this, uh, this great phrase. He says, God exalted him, Christ, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So we see two gifts there given, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now we're going to combine that with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, the gift. Everything about our salvation is a gift, and, and there is specifically talking about even the faith with which we believe on Christ with and for. So we have these three amazing gifts that we've been given of faith and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. 
everything that is needed for salvation. There's not something that we come up with ourselves, but instead are given by God on the basis of what Christ has done, worked into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You know, think about that. If you're a Christian, for many of you, you can remember a moment or a day or a week or something like that. For some, it's a little hazier of when it exactly happened you were converted. But for many, you look back and you can look back and see that that didn't come from me. Think about that experience when, when you went from unbelief to belief. You went from loving sin to hating sin or thinking you were doing just fine to knowing you needed Jesus from bearing the record of your own sin to having it taken from you or perhaps you remember that, that immediate feeling of joy or that burden lifted from your shoulders that so many experience. Right? And if these are from God, these things are gifts, right? We did not earn them. We did not merit them. They were given to us and we are to receive them with thankfulness. But, but these things are gifts doubly. We'll say they're doubly. One, that they are given to us and that we cannot earn anything in our salvation. But also, it is a gift in that these things are worked into our heart by the Holy Spirit. My friends, robbers want nothing to do with cops, in the words of C.S. Lewis. Sinners want nothing to do with God. And something has to change within us. God has to make us new, give us a new heart called regeneration that calls us to call out on Him in faith and repentance which these things in and of themselves are gifts. What this means is that Christ is the Savior and leader, as we are told here, of our salvation. Leader as in founder, leader as in prince and ruler. But you know, this gift is offered to all. There's that tension of God is the one who does it, works and wills in our hearts, but also we have that responsibility to respond to Him now think about all the ways that people have responded to gifts that you have given, or perhaps you, the ways you have responded to gifts people have given you. Um, I was thinking this morning about a party that my roommates threw me in, in college, and I was, I was sick, like physically ill. And, uh, and I was really ungrateful to them. Now, I might have been ungrateful to them even if I hadn't been sick, unfortunately, because I'm a sinner and I'm selfish. But man, I didn't respond well in that situation. And that was a great gift they gave me. But, but so often we're given even greater gifts and we don't respond well. Think about this. Think if you gave 10 people a Honda Civic, brand new Honda Civic. Now that's a nice vehicle, isn't it? I saw one on the road yesterday. I thought, man, that's a nice vehicle. Now what if you gave 10 people a Honda Civic, brand new? Now you're going to have 10 different responses. Many of them hopefully will be thankful. But, but what if the guy works for Ford? Did you ever think about that? He can't drive a Honda Civic. Or what if you've been holding on to it a week, just you know, hadn't gotten around to giving it to him, and, and one of those people signed lease papers the day before. Like, man, why didn't you give this to me yesterday? You're going to have different responses. Or what if the person is disabled and needs a wheelchair, and you know that, and instead you gave him a, a low racing version of the Honda Civic. That's not going to work out so well. There are different responses even for good gifts. And unfortunately, we see that in, our, in ourselves, and we also see it in this text. We see different responses. So let's, let's look at these different responses. The first set of reactions we find are the divided reactions of the people. In verses 12 through 16, we're given this summary, the summary statement that the apostles, though John and Peter have been arrested and told not to do what they are doing, they continue to do it, and they do it with great boldness, even in the temple courts, Solomon's portico, which was on the 
trying to think how my map looks in the ESV study Bible. I think on the east side of the temple, along the edge, it was a big covered area uh, spilling out into the open area, kind of like a glorified pole barn closed in on one side. And so you could talk and teach a lot of people there. And so they were not hiding their activity. And in fact, people were very being brought in from the very outer edges of Jerusalem and beyond to be healed and to hear and to be saved and it can be converted. There was a lot going on. But even within these crowds, we have two reactions. Verse 13, we find this. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, that's, that's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? They would hold them in high esteem, but not dare to join them. Right? There, there is no doubt that there was certain excitement to stand down the street on a corner a little further down and watch all those people who could not walk. All of a sudden, as Peter walked by and his shadow went over him, stand up and walk. That would have been exciting to see. Certainly there was excitement to, to, to be on the outer edge of the crowds and, and to listen as they talked, perhaps finding an excuse to walk by one more time, just walk a little slower, but, but not to stop, not dare to stop, lest anybody think that you're one of those religious crazy people. This is a phenomenon today, isn't it? We can say socially distancing from Jesus. It's especially true of the South where there's still a cultural benefit to being connected to a church. But, but let's not get carried away and be one of those religious crazies who actually lives out the stuff from Monday through Saturday. There are no doubt blessings of being part of a church and not knowing Jesus. It's better to know Jesus. But certainly if you're, if you're part of our congregation, if you're not a member, if you regularly attend, what's going to happen if you have surgery? You're going to get a meal. Right? You're going to have folks who love on you. Or to say hello, you have that community. There are benefits of being connected to the covenant people of God, but actually not being part of the covenant people of God to socially distance from Jesus. But the benefit stops at death. It's a common reaction. To, to hold them in high esteem, but not dare to join. On the other hand, at the same time, in this context... In verse 14, we read some really exciting stuff going on. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I love that phrase, believers added to the Lord. That's a great way to pray. Lord, that there be more believers added to you. See, while many stayed away, others were trusting in Christ, both men and women. And for Luke, for the first time in Acts, he stops trying to give an approximate number of people. He just can't count that high. He doesn't have that many fingers and toes. It's a great number, a mighty big bundle, a heap of folks, of people trusting in Christ and receiving the great gifts of faith, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. This is going on at the same time as people hear the same sermons and see the same acts and wonders and signs. Different reactions. How have you reacted? What's your reaction? Well, we have some more reactions here, some pretty hostile ones. See, all this is going on in the temple courts, and you know, you know, it's only going to go on so long before the Jewish authorities get upset again. You'll remember back in chapters 3 and 4 that Peter and John were arrested for healing a lame man and then going and preaching in the temple courts. And at the end of that trial before the Sanhedrin, or the 71, 70 plus the one chief priest, 
uh, members of the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of the Jews, they were told very strictly, don't do this again or else, or else. Well, they kept on going. Right? Here we go again. And so here we have another common response to the offer of the free gifts of faith, repentance, and forgiveness. And we see this in verses 17 through 18. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. What was their response, the chief and the Sadducees? The, the chief priest was a Sadducee. There were two main parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the, the Sadducees were mostly the priests and certainly the high priestly family. What was their response? It was jealousy. Now, no, it's not zeal for the Lord. In fact, it's, it's the same Greek word. Zealous and jealous are the same Greek word. But it's obviously not used here in a good way. They are not zealous to maintain the purity of Israel, purity of Israel and its teaching and its, what it's hearing because they think this is wrong teaching. That's, that's not what's going on here. They, they are not just envious of what's going on. Envy is wanting what someone else has. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has and getting angry that someone else has it. It's kind of like if I like your truck. And it's not that I'm excited for you and maybe want that truck. It's that, man, I'm thinking about slashing your tires because you got that truck. I don't want you to have it. That's what's going on here. What in the world could they be jealous about? I imagine a whole heap and lot, right? The people were following the apostles and not them. It's kind of a zero-sum game. You're in the temple, and you're going to be in one of two places, heading towards the worship of God through the sacrifices and the ministry of the chief priest. Or, before you get to that section, you'd see Solomon's portico with all those people. Hey, what's going on over there? And becoming a believer. And as the crowds coming to them was, were, was dwindling, they weren't so happy. But then there's this issue of authority. Like Everybody knew this public trial had happened, and they had been told, no, this was going to be some egg in the eye for them. They were going to lose their um, image, their reputation. You know, they're, they're probably also pretty mad and ashamed that God was blessing the ministry of the apostles and He wasn't doing it for them. But ultimately, you know what I think it comes down to? I think it comes down to an issue of control. Don't you? They were jealous because they couldn't control the situation. Something was happening out of their hands, and everything they were doing to stop it was failing. It was kind of like throwing water on a grease fire or water on napalm. You know, that doesn't help anything. It makes it worse. And that's what's going on here. You know, as we think about responses, this is a big-picture response. As we think about the issues of the persecuted church, and especially in countries like... Um, China, North Korea, these communist countries. Marxism and communism uh, deny the existence of the soul. It's a materialistic philosophy. They deny the existence of anything you can't see, feel, hear, or touch. Because if there's a soul, that means there's something they cannot control. They don't like that. And so they're very eager to stamp out the church. All religion, really. But remember when I said that our response to gifts is dictated by what's in our heart and our perceived wants and needs. Here's the thing. The Jewish leadership didn't perceive any need within them of what was going on. And so this jealousy led to the persecution of the apostles. Back in Acts chapter 3 and 4, Peter and John were arrested. But this time it's all 12. 
And apparently, it was towards the end of the day. You could not have a trial towards the end of the day after the evening sacrifice. So they put them in the public prison. Now, essentially, this is a different prison than the one that James, I mean, uh, Peter and John were put in. They were put in the, the one that was in the temple courts. This one is the Roman prison. Not a real nice place to be. In fact, they, they didn't feed you. Your friends had to bring you food, otherwise you'd just die. And they were put in there with where they would have put thieves and murderers overnight. But see, God was on the move. God was on the move. Praise be to God. So he sent an angel, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord. And he freed them in such a way that the gates remained locked and the guards didn't see. And he freed them and they gave, he gave them a charge. It was to go and continue to preach. This very thing that they put you in for, go and keep doing it. Go and tell all the people the words of this life. I like how he puts that, this life. And so when dawn comes up, where are they to be found? Back in the temple courts, back in Solomon's portico, preaching and teaching, great signs and wonders being done. Now, uh, that didn't go so well from a fleshly perspective. We'll look at the response of the apostles in a second. But, but when Peter is able to give a defense of the gospel, what's the response of the chief priests and Sadducees? Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. See, the Greek word for enraged here, it means literally to be sawn asunder. They were just cut in half. Mentally, they could not bear it, and they wanted to kill them. Something that they're not going to succeed here, but they will succeed as, as a people uh, with Stephen in a couple weeks. They were talked off the ledge by a man named Gamaliel, someone we'll look at in just a second. But they did give them the 40 lashes, probably. They beat them. It's just probably the 40 lashes minus one. You gave 39 because you were giving lip service it, to God because it often killed people. And you're letting more or less God to decide, God to decide if they lived or died. It was, it was a very bad beating. Well, so that's the second response. That of jealousy, of hostility. But there's a third reaction and at it, 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 the first blush, it looks like that it's the opposite of the chief priests and Sadducees. But my friends, it's equally, if not even more deadly. And that's the response of Gamaliel. See, in verses 34 through 39, we learn that there's a Pharisee named Gamaliel who stood up and convinced the rest of the Sanhedrin not to kill these guys, but instead to leave them alone. Now, Gamaliel was a really important person. He was the leader of the Pharisees. He was highly respected by both sides of the aisle. And if you recognize his name, it's because Paul's going to reference him. He was Paul's mentor and rabbi. And it's possible that Paul was even in the audience. And certainly if he wasn't in the audience, he would hear this very day from Gamaliel's lips what had happened. So we're, start, we're getting closer to Paul here. Well, what, did he, what did he recommend? Verses 38 and 39, we read this. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. I have to admit, until I prepared for this sermon, I've always thought of Gamaliel as kind of a, um, a strange ally. Praise God for Gamaliel. But that's not what's going on here. 
He's not like Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee and in the Sanhedrin and is a follower of Christ. Gamaliel, I'm going to hope to convince you, he's not looking out for anything except political expediency. He's not sensitive to the claims of Christ. He would like these guys to go away. He's only doing what he thinks will get rid of them the fastest way and maintain the status quo. Let's talk gifts again. If someone gives you a gift, uh, perhaps a, a Mossberg shotgun. Mossberg shotgun, those are, those are pretty nice. But you're a Beretta man. Now there are two ways that you can not use this Mossberg. The first is you can yell and cuss at the guy and throw it back in his face. And that's kind of the response of the uh, chief priests and Sadducees. Very vocal about it. The other way is to take it, be polite, put it on the shelf, and never use it. Is there really any difference between those two in the sense of using the gift? No. You're polite about it, but you keep on moving on. That's kind of what Gamaliel does here. See, what, what happens is that Peter is going to speak, and he's going to say some amazing things. He's going to preach again on the resurrection of the Christ. He's going to talk again about how they are the ones who killed the Messiah, that they're not obeying God, that they have not received the forgiveness of sins that is available for them. And then Gamaliel stands up, and he disregards every bit of what Peter says. And he said some pretty amazing things. Instead of engaging, he sets it aside with the outward appearance of religiosity. And that is a dangerous thing indeed. I hear what you're saying, but I'm just going to keep on moving and not engage with that. I hear that you're saying that if you don't believe in Christ, you go to hell. I hear that, but I'm just going to keep on moving and not engage with that. You know, I have all this knowledge, but there's just no real engagement of my heart. Or perhaps using religion as a political tool without anything going on in the soul of the person. Or perhaps growing up in church and knowing all the right words but never engaging with the claims of Christ and the call to salvation. My friends, this is more dangerous than what the chief priests and Sadducees did. Well, let's get to the good stuff. Let's look at the response and reaction of the apostles. For for they had received faith and repentance and forgiveness of sins, and it had turned their lives upside down. This is what happens when you become a believer, by the way. It it turns your life upside down. And sometimes whether we even know it or not. Um, Do you remember the story of Lazarus when he is raised from the dead? What impact did his resurrection have on his life? Well, that's kind of a silly question, isn't it? He went from death to life. It changed everything. This is what happens in salvation. We who are spiritually dead are made spiritually alive. We who hated God love God. In the words of John Matthew, we go from liking waffles and instead we like pancakes. Uh, You know, He changes us. Now some of those changes happen immediately in salvation and some of them we grow in sanctification. What kind of impact does it have when Christ gives us faith, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins? It changes everything. And we see that especially in the apostles. These fishermen, this tax collector, Simon the Zealot, by the way, the Zealots were those who wanted to overthrow the Romans by force. He came from that kind of background. He would have been a feisty man. Uh, Peter, who would deny the Christ uh, three times publicly. Thomas, who would doubt. 
all but John um, forsook Christ at the cross. And then here are these men standing before the Sanhedrin with the threat of death hanging over their very lives. And they boldly proclaim Christ. What in the world has happened? They're different men. The Holy Spirit had come in them, baptized them. They were filled and anointed with the Spirit. See, when we become believers, it changes everything. It's amazing that in their defense, they're not worried about themselves, but rather the glory of Christ. Look at verses 29 through 32. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now that's that's all you get for their own defense. 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. It's interesting. I mean, it is likely they're going to die at this point in their minds. They've been imprisoned. Peter and John had already been imprisoned, let go, told not to do it. They'd all been imprisoned, told not to do it. Uh, Well, that's coming. They've been freed. They go and do it again. They've been brought in. Their impending death hangs all over this passage. And what do they do? They're not worried about themselves. Instead, they take the opportunity to proclaim Christ again. That's just, that's phenomenal. But even more, look at their response to the beating they receive. Now, this is not a spanking. This is a, and this is, it is meant to publicly shame them. They would have been, uh, what they would have done, they've been stripped of their shirt or their long tunic. They would have been placed on the ground, uh, placed face up first, and a third of their beatings uh, with the whip that could or could not have included some things on the end to make it worse, a third of them would have been received on the front of their chest and wrapping around their neck and their face, and it would have been meant to publicly shame them because it would have marked them as having received a penalty. Then they would have been turned on their back to receive the last two-thirds. It was an awful thing. A lot of times people died. And yet, what was their response? Look at verse um, 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced not because they were released. They rejoiced not because they were not executed. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. May the Lord give me that kind of attitude May the Lord give me that kind of attitude. Don't you want that? We get so upset about... I mean, there's, there's some persecution in America. There is. There is. Uh, some of the things in the courts, some of the things legislatures are doing, they're bad. They're bad. But instead of being, having a victim mentality, perhaps we ought to thank God that we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And instead of spending so much time on fretting on what could or might happen... Instead, taking that energy and proclaiming the name of Jesus, the only hope in this life and in the next. May the Lord give me that kind of attitude. What did they do? They kept on going. They kept on going. Like water on a grease fire, it just made it worse. Verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. How do we sum up? How do we summarize this passage? It's a big passage. 
We've seen different responses to the good and free gifts from Christ of faith, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. What, what is your response? Certainly in salvation, if you don't know Jesus, turn to Him. Like the crowds, of, uh, more and more people, more and more believers are being added to the Lord. May your name be written in the, in the um, book of life. May you receive forgiveness of your sins today. But if you are a believer... Um, has your love of the gospel grown cold? So often it does in my life. Have you forgotten the amazing gift of Christ our Savior, the risen King? He's coming back one day. He's coming back. You know, some funerals are harder to do than others. Mr. Riggs's was not hard. Because he knew Jesus, and it was real clear he knew Jesus. And there's hope for Mr. Riggs. It's not hope like, I hope it works out, but, but we know that he's with Jesus. right? If you died today, do you know if you'd be with Jesus? And if you're a believer in Christ, don't you yearn for the return of Christ to make all this mess go away? All this pain and suffering to be no more? No more bad news, no more midnight calls, no more saying goodbyes. That's only possible because of the amazing news of Jesus. Until we pray, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. So Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. That we would receive life. We who, who deserve eternal death. That through his death we might be raised from the dead. And live with you forevermore. So we pray, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.